The Homance Chronicles. The female equivalent of a bromance. So many poor choices. But so many good takes. But so many poor choices. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Whole Man's Chronicles, and I'm Sarah. And I'm dancing. Full. <laughs> At least and I welcome. didn't sing. At least I didn't sing or complain about it. <laughs> nope. You just rubbed the mic all up in everybody's ears. Yeah. Just Thanks. gave us a good old mic rubbing. <laughs> <laughs> mic rubs and finger guns is what you get from me today, y'all. <laughs> um. So... I was tired of feeling behind on my hose of history and consistently like moving them on the to-do list till the next day. You know, like I was always like, well, I guess I could do that, you know, here, there, or whatever. As God damn it, as this dog tries to eat my headphones. Um <laughs> karma. <laughs> and so I was like, well, let me let me get a little bit ahead of this. So I don't feel so like panicky and rushed. And I really want to do these women justice. Yeah. You know, I don't want to like rush through all this stuff. Right. Yeah. And miss out on something important or uh, juicy, something. Yeah. Exciting <laughs> to share. Or juicy. And um, <laughs> yeah, you always want the juicy bits. So anyway, when I was in school for forever, like all the way through my master's program, I could write papers and have the TV on. Like, I don't like doing it when it's super quiet. Like I need music or something because a lot of times I'll just want to fall asleep. So when I've been doing these hoes of history, though, I've realized that if I try to do them while I'm watching TV, I don't have the same skills I used to. Oh, yeah. Like, I I used to be able to just kind of have it on in the background and still knock out like a reporter or paper or something. Yeah. No, that was not the case. Oh, it has no. not been the case anytime I've tried to do <laughs> one of these at the same time as watching TV. And I don't know if it is because I'm doing it ahead of time. So the pressure isn't there. Probably. To get it done. Probably. So yesterday, I'm like, well, let me put on like a dumb show in the background that like, I won't need Wanna to, watch. well, that I don't need to follow. Mm -hmm. Like I don't need to use my brain. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just sitcom type shit. Well, I always tend to navigate towards like the dating reality shows. Oh, see those ones I have to watch. I can't not. really, I'm maybe obsessed. that's, maybe that's my problem. Maybe I was just like, Oh, I have to watch this. Well, I mean like, so, those are, those are the, interest pieces I watch if I want to like put something on in the background it's either something I've already seen which I can't loathe doing that so I probably won't do that but or like a movie that I can predict mm. the outcome of or a b-rate movie that's got its moments and you're only paying attention for like the trailer bits <laughs> yeah I don't know I just was like let me not put on something super scripted with an intricate story that I need to actually pay attention to and follow I could just put on like this trashy dating show so on peacock they have this show <laughs> called meet the queens which oh, i know watch which i know i keep coming back to this podcast and telling people about shows on peacock they constantly surprise me well i will say that there have been several movies that peacock came in and saved the day with this weekend so like yeah i'm with it i'm still down to pay that extra what it's like 5.99 for the ad free or no, for the base. And then you have to tax on, tack on like another $4.99 for ad free. They get you. They get you. It's actually like $11 total at the end of the month. <laughs> oh, well, it's just included in my current uh, table yeah. subscription because I still have cable. Nice. So anyway, there's a show called Meet the Queens. Now it has Tamar Braxton, Evelyn Lozada, and Nivea. Come on. They are the queens. They are the queens. Who are looking for their their king? Oh no, it's a love match show. Oh, I'm I'm hooked. I haven't even fucking seen a trailer. No, no. Oh, Nivea, who I I couldn't place. Like when when they showed her picture, I was like, who is that? Because 
we haven't actually seen her since the 2000s, like early 2000s. And you know who else? Maya, but continue. Um, but she's recognizable. This is true. If I saw Maya, I think she looks exactly the same. Anyway, so Nivea, her personality kills me. She's so funny. She's um for those of you who don't know, she's an R&B singer and she actually does a lot of like songwriting and and things in the background, but um her baby daddy is Lil Wayne and her ex-husband is The Dream, which I think she might have a kid with him too. I'm not sure. Anyway, so <laughs> the guys that she's going for complete like opposites of Lil Wayne, right? Which you would expect at this point in her life. Like they're now like in their late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, maybe whatever. And so they're definitely trying to alter who they normally would date. It's amazing. Tamar's entertaining a white guy and she's talking about how she's never had vanilla before. <laughs> and Evelyn Lozada, who is from like Basketball Wives and had a very well-known quick marriage with Ocho Cinco uh, and was in a domestic violence thing with him, um, is going for like the super good guy. Like I, it, in one sense of it, I'm like, I'm so proud of their growth. Look at them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's called Queens court, not meet the Queens. Oh, meet the okay. Queens is a drag show or the RuPaul's drag race meet the Queens thing, but it's called Queens court. Oh, okay. All or right. Queens baddies. court. Oh yeah. Okay. She did grow up a little bit, huh? So anyway, I was sucked in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't finish doing my hose of history report until like 1.30 in the morning or something. No, 2.30. 2.30 oh, is when I sent you that Instagram thing because then I had to like, after shutting off my computer and all the screens and stuff, I can't just like fall asleep. I said like, decompose, decompress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or I could just melt away into pieces into the ground and decompose as well. That is an option. Um but yeah, so no, I mean, when I was skimming through Instagram, it's more of like a, a filler in between the actual report, book report and trying to go to bed. Um, but yeah, so I think I finished it up like around 1.30 or something like that. And I was like, oh my God, how is it this late? <laughs> I had gotten so invested in that show and in their yeah. love lives. I feel like at this point, we're so overwhelmed and stressed with everything that junk TV shows like that that allow you to completely check out of reality are so much better than those dramatic scripted scenes that you got to figure out what's going on. I don't want to figure shit out. I want the tea, damn it. I want to see live action tea. Don't fuck with me. <laughs> That's what I need. Well, these, this was full of live action. And then, <laughs> you know who hosts it? Hmm. Holly Robinson Pete and her husband. Oh my God, wait, no. And she's the cutest. And they've been married for like 30 years or something. Oh my God, look at her. I didn't even recognize her. Oh, really? I feel like she looks the same. Well, it's also but, a smaller picture. Oh, but yeah. I was dying because there were so many parts of it that I could relate to when it comes to dating. Like there was this one episode where they kind of did like a speed dating thing. And Tamar is really good at getting like, well, actually, I was, Evelyn's probably better at getting like the the necessary bits out the fastest. But Tamar is really good at like basically judging them to their faces and <laughs> so once she finds out about it then she's like what what how did that happen <laughs> like yes four kids and three of them were with the same baby mama and he's on this show and he's got a newborn but he's never has been married and he's like in his late 40s or early 50s or something and Tamar's just like so you don't want to marry this woman? She's had three children by you. Why are you even here? You have a newborn. Like <laughs> for real though. Like she's not wrong. Oh, like I love it. <laughs> I love so much justice. <laughs> he served that person. 
I know. A lot of times it's not, it doesn't even get to the point though where I meet them, right? It's like on the dating app. I'm like, why are you fucking here? Like, go away. <laughs> like, you clearly are not meant to be dating right now. Well, I feel like the court is actually the dating app for them because let's be real. Like, you're not going to go on a dating app with that kind of recognition and be like, hey, let me find a real person who wants to genuinely connect with me. Right. Right. A hundred percent. And so all the guys, all these characters are so funny to me. Uh. <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to watch it. And Seth is yes. on nights. I don't know when Seth isn't on nights anymore. So like, I got to figure that part out. Oh, my well, nighttime and, watching is over. And the funniest bit is that um, Tamar reminded me of my friend Carmen and Nivea reminded me of LaToya. Oh, even better. And so like the two of them interacting together, it just, I was like, this feels so close to home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hey, Queens. Nice to see you again. We're almost on a first name basis. (laughs) Oh, anyway, speaking of Queens, I will now get into my hoe of history for today. Um, Since I've hyped up this other show so much, I almost forgot what I was here for. Okay. So (laughs) I decided to do Joan Crawford today because I did Betty Davis before and you know Joan Crawford and Betty Davis are like you know yeah rivals they're their nemesis yeah and I looked at Joan and I was like you know what she deserves more time than I have so I'm really happy you did that right so yesterday I was like oh I have I have the time yes let me do Joan she requires the time she requires adequate amount of time Yes. And so that's another reason why it went into the wee hours of the night, um, because there's a lot of juicy bits about Joan. <laughs> I thought she was a psycho. I love it. Crawford was an Oscar winning actress, dancer and executive. Joan Crawford's extraordinary career encompassed over 45 years and about 80 films. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know the, the name Joan Crawford, I, You're probably super young. Yeah, I'm assuming you were <laughs> you were born after 2000. So, Joan Crawford was born Lucille Fay Lasour. I'm assuming I'm pre- pronouncing her last name correctly. Lasour, Lasour, Lasour. Okay, but the, it's the French. First, obviously, the first two were so lovely, and then we switched to Joan. No offense, mm. to the of the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll tell you the whole reason that happened. I'm sure there's a good reason. I'm sure that's part of why she went crazy. No, it has nothing to do with her. It's ridiculous. Oh, man. <laughs> here for it. Super here for it. She was born on March 23rd, 1904 in San Antonio, Texas. However, there's debate regarding the actual year of her birth. So some sources give 1906 or 1908, but 1904 is what's cited the most often. And um, government records indicate 1908. (laughs) Well, you know, the government's not necessarily as put together as everybody thinks. So it's still just a shit show. So whenever I refer to her age, I'm going to say abouts. <laughs> abouts. Round abouts. <laughs> Round. So um, we do not have an unfamiliar story here compared to many of our other hoes of history. Her dad abandoned the family when she was 10 months old. Um, more than likely, her mom and dad were separated before she was even born. Mm. So by the time she was three or four, she had actually already had two stepfathers. So um trauma in the womb. <laughs> trauma as soon as she comes out of the womb. There's a pattern here. <laughs> well, I mean, we keep hearing about these fathers who were leaving and not providing and just didn't want anything to do with their kids or their family. It's just it's heartbreaking, especially when you are looking at today's roles and how in some of our previous episodes about dating and relationships and you talk about like feminine and masculine energy and you're like, oh, well, you know, previously there was like a moral compass and it was like women ran the house and men did this. And, you know, nowadays everything's all fucked up because we all do everything. But when you look back on it, you're like, 
Mm, all these women had to do everything and the men just did nothing. They did nothing. So they, they perpetuated that in the 50s and 60s and created those labels. I mean, yeah. Anyway, I saw like a statistic about something about um the when birth control became available and the liberation of sex and how there were so many um more single mothers because women were having sex more freely and it wasn't like such a a hit on their morale to do so and stuff. And I'm like, okay, but can we just rewind even in like 50 years before that where women were just being left by their husbands? Right. (laughs) Like they thought they had it all good. They thought they were married or they thought they were in a committed relationship. (laughs) Um, A person who cared about them. Right. So I'm like, Fast forward 50 years and so women get on birth control and there's and there's accidental like mistakes or whatever. There's more free sex and people aren't taking their birth control or whatever the case is. And now all of a sudden there's more single mothers. And I'm like, I mean, I guess (sighs) do a deep dive. I don't know. I don't know. I think that everybody had appearances to be. back then mm. <laughs> like you know, that freaking bathroom i sent you on instagram that super pink bathroom that all 1927 decadence it's mm-hmm. all about the appearances mm-hmm. that's true so anyway let me get back on track get off my soapbox um so her her second stepfather was henry uh Kaysen. Casson, Casson, they moved Kaysen. to Lawton, Oklahoma, where Casson ran the Ramsey Opera House. And so as a child, Joan preferred the nickname Billy. Now, remember, her her actual first name is Lucille. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how he got to Billy. Um, <laughs> however, Billy enjoyed watching vaudeville acts perform on the stage of her stepfather's theater. And um, she actually was unaware that he was her stepdad. She called him dad. Like she literally was like, (gasps) had no idea that he wasn't her biological father. And then her brother actually later told her the truth. Oh my God. Her brother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? Where's her mom? Okay. Keep going. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm just going to continue to keep just so you know, I'm coloring so I can keep focused on you. Okay. All right. (laughs) I just got to do what you got to do. Um, from childhood, Joan's ambitions were to be a dancer. Um, but for whatever reason, she was in piano lessons and in an attempt to avoid going to her piano lesson, she leapt off the front porch of her home and cut her foot really bad, like on a broken piece of glass, like a broken milk bottle. Like on purpose? She jumped on a milk bottle on purpose? No, no, no. That was the accident part. She jumped off the porch on purpose to avoid her piano lesson. (laughs) She was trying to bail an instant karma hit. Got it. Yes. So she ended up needing three surgeries to repair her her foot. And so it was actually unlikely that she was going to be able to walk normal again. Like the doctors always thought she was going to have like some sort of little limp or something. Um, For 18 months, she didn't go to school or dance. And so, but as soon as she was able to start doing that again, she was like super determined and started dancing constantly and didn't let her stop her. And so she ended up walking normal and everything. Wow. Good for her. I know, because she was like, I don't know, probably eight when this happened. Jesus, the resolve of these children. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I know. You, I would love to see, like, if we picked up little Billy Crawford and brought her to the right now times as an eight-year-old, how do you feel like she would manage? She'd probably manage better than all the adults we know. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Let's be honest. Every single one of us would be like, wow, okay. This bitch has got it figured out. Eight years old. I know. Well, that's what I said. It's another situation where it, they're under 10 years old and they're like making their own life choices. Like, Honestly. this is also a constant theme as well. Is like, oh, I know what's best for me. I'm nine. <laughs> <laughs> but like, <laughs> Part of me wonders if 
Like we are not trusting kids enough nowadays because at nine or 10 years old, I feel like, you know, enough to like take yourself to the market and get yourself a snack. So like, are we doing too much now? Are we reverting? Are these kids all just stupid as fuck? Well, that's where the term helicopter parenting probably came from. Yeah. Um, so in June, 1917, Joan was around 11 to 13. Again, we don't really know exactly. Um, and 11 to 13. Yes. And the family moved to Kansas City, Missouri. This is after her stepdad was accused of embezzlement. Love so this. we're still on a on the same train. There's Money these fuckery. men, these men who are trying to do crimes to get ahead or whatever. Um, he was acquitted, though. But that still meant he was like blacklisted in Oklahoma. So he was like, all right, we got to move to Kansas City. (laughs) All right, listen, we're going to go to KC, you see. So um, although her stepdad wasn't Catholic, uh, he placed Joan at St. Agnes Academy in Kansas City. And then um, her mom and stepfather separated after that. So. She, the only way she could remain at the school was to be a work student. So she spent actually far more time working at the school than she did learning. So she primarily like cooked and cleaned and stuff instead of studying. So they made her a slave. (laughs) Yes. Cool. Again, we're talking about young children um, having to support the family. Or just themselves. That's fucked up enough. Right. I mean, I feel like the the first half page of all of my stories are the same. <laughs> yes. They do have a crazy pattern of similarities. A random woman for history. I can tell you the first half page of that story. <laughs> <laughs> so even though she worked a variety of menial jobs, she continued to do her dancing. And um, really thought that dance was her ticket to show business. After coming back from a traumatic foot injury, mind you. Yes. Yes, she did. She hasn't even approached the age of 15. She probably hasn't had menstruation yet. She She was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. (laughs) Um, So she actually entered several contests. And one of them landed her a spot in a chorus line. And so um, she actually went to dance in like big Midwestern and East Coast cities. So she had made a stop in Detroit on that little dance no tour. Way. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After almost two years, she packed her bags and moved to Hollywood. So um, Joan was determined to succeed. And her first film was Lady of the Night in 1925. So she would have been about 20 years old, but she didn't um, have like an actual part in it. She was a body double for Norma Shearer. Um, Norma. Norma was MGM's most popular female star at the time. So one of the reasons that she was in all the movies, though, is because she was like fucking one of the or actually she might have been married to one of the guys at MGM, like one of the top executives. Yes. Oh, yeah. That was 100 percent how they did things back then. And um. Because Joan had made comments before about how is she going to ever get any parts from Norma or do better than her when she's fucking the boss. Like, that's what Joan said. (laughs) She said that she was like 14 years old. (laughs) She's 20. (laughs) That's good. She achieved 20 years old. Yeah. So um, Joan got her first bit part as a showgirl in Pretty Ladies in 1925. So... In these movies, she was credited as Lucille Lusser. But MGM publicity head Pete Smith recognized her ability to become a major star, but didn't like her name. He said that her name sounded fake. So he told the studio head, uh, Louis Mayer, that her last name, Lusser, reminded him of a sewer. Well, but maybe I'm spe- like, maybe it's pronounced Lusser. <laughs> Either way, it sounds like sewer, and it rubbed that American the wrong way. Oh, goodness. I'm so sorry. Can you hear him? No, I just barely. You can't hear him barking his head off? Oh, a little bit. You're, well, your mic oh, is my goodness. Anyway, so it's not oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. 
hold on one second. This is, I don't know what's happening. We're having a breakdown. Okay. Okay, I'm back. There was a weird, nervous breakdown. That was oh, okay. We're not done. <laughs> we really. It honestly doesn't sound like he's in the room with you. It sounds like a dog in the distance outside. So it's probably more distracting oh. for you than us. It's so loud for me. <laughs> Mike really must be blocking out like exterior sounds. Well, that's it amazing. All your laughing. So yes. <laughs> oh wow. Um. Okay. So, MGM publicity had Pete Smith organized a contest called Name the Star in Movie Weekly to allow readers to select her new stage name. The initial choice was Joan Arden, but another actress already had that name. (laughs) Oh my God, what? Let's just give you random names. Let's have the public decide what your name's going to be. And so an alternative last name was Crawford. And so that became the choice. But um, Joan didn't like her new name. She actually wanted Joan to be pronounced Joanne. She really wanted, she liked Joanne better for some reason. I don't know. And that she hated the name Crawford because it sounded like crawfish. So, yeah. So she did say, though, that Joan Crawford liked that name holistically did provide a security to her like it's very and that it did yeah so um still in private she wanted people to call her billy (laughs) oh joan all right (laughs) people on the streets call me joan but you you can call me billy right Okay. <laughs> but my real name's Lucille. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Joan was named one of 1926's Wampus Baby Stars. Now, Wampus is a Western Association of Mo- Motion Picture Advertisers. And so they do a promotional campaign in the United States every year. And they honored 13 young actresses each year whom they believed to be on the threshold of movie stardom. Hmm. So she was named in that in 1926. And then three films quickly followed. So the roles weren't a lot to speak of, but she was, you know, determined. One thing is that she was a very hard worker. Yes. And um, so throughout 1927 and early 1928, she was cast in small parts. But that ended with the role of Diana Medford in Our Dancing Daughters in 1928. And that is the role that elevated her to star status. So that established her as a symbol of modern 1920s style, femininity, and Hollywood's foremost flapper. Oh, she became the flapper of Hollywood. Uh Uh-huh. And so then a stream of hits followed after that. So... um. The interesting thing, though, is that she she lived through many transitions in the movie world. And one of them was going from silent film to uh, what they called talkies, which is film <laughs> with <Yeah>. audio. Um, <laughs> Movies. <laughs> what we now know as a movie. Yeah. So many stars of the silent films actually saw their careers kind of go away because their voices weren't particularly pleasant or pleasing enough or didn't match like the public's expectations. So, you know, that's another thing like with online dating is like (laughs) the same thing. You're like, oh, I knew he sounded like that. I know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I guess there were a lot of those moments. So (laughs) I mean, stars kind of started floating away. Could you imagine being like this hyper famous star in that era, and your like legacy doesn't live on because you didn't have a voice people liked? (laughs) Like you're not even remembered in Joan Crawford stories because (laughs) 
because you weren't in a talkie. You weren't in a talkie. <laughs> or you were and you were fucking booed yeah. out of there. Right. So her first talkie was Untamed in 1929, which was a success. And then also in 1929, she did the Hollywood Review and her tap dancing was the first audible tap dance on screen. Oh, girl. So then later in 1929, around the age 25, she married Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Now, Fairbanks was the son of Douglas Fairbanks Sr., and the stepson of Mary Pickford. And they were Hollywood royalty. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. they weren't into Joan, um, to <laughs> put it lightly. Um, Fairbanks Sr. and Pickford opposed the marriage and did not even invite the couple to their home for eight months after they were married. No. <laughs> no. And then after they um, were invited to the home, any time after that where, let's just say, dad and son went out and did something, golf or whatever, uh, Joan would get left behind and Mary didn't like her. So Joan would just have to be by herself in this house. <sighs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mary was like not even going to entertain her. Oh, wow. That's. I got no words for that one. Right. Well, then, you know, unsurprisingly, four years later, they get divorced. And um, Joan cited grievous mental cruelty as the reason for the divorce. (laughs) And that claimed she claimed that her ex-husband had a jealous and suspicious attitude towards her friends and that they had loud arguments about the most trivial subjects and they would go far into the night. So my note though, after this says Fairbanks fucked up though. (laughs) Well, essentially. Yeah. Because from 1932 to 1936, Joan was on the list of the top 10 money-making stars. So, liberation! (laughs) (laughs) That gave her popularity at the box office. And following her divorce, she was teamed up with Clark Gable and Fred Astaire in the hit Dancing Lady, where she received top billing. Jones' films of this era were some of the most popular and highest grossing films of the mid-1930s. So I did find that in 1937, in an Associated Press article that was published in the New York Times, Joan earned $351,358. So we'll just say $350,000. And she was number 14 on a list of only 17 Americans who earned more than $300,000 that year. Which in today's money is 7.4 million. Get it, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So in 1935, she ended up marrying Franchot Tone. Franchot? Franchot Tone? He was a stage actor from New York who planned to use his film earnings to finance his theater group. Um. The couple built a small theater at Jones Brentwood home. So Brentwood is in upscale part of California and it's not far from like Hollywood hangouts and stuff. So they would put on these productions at their house and invite like select people to their home, like Clark Gable and Charlie Chase. Like when I say select people, I mean, just, you know, no, no, but I'm just meaning like the, the top echelon in Hollywood at the time would come watch their little plays at her house. The upper crust. Right. Um, but interestingly enough, each time that Joan married, she changed the name of her Brentwood estate and installed new toilet seats. <laughs> <laughs> I will never sit on the same toilet seat as you, you fucking atrocious, awful human being. <laughs> don't ask me how I found that. Um, I don't know, but it's the best trivia question ever. 
I have got a lot of trivia nuggets in here. <laughs> so she had a clean, uh, cleanliness obsession. So she used to wash her hands every 10 minutes and then follow guests around her house, wiping everything they touched, especially doorknobs and like pieces of China. And um, she would never let them smoke a cigarette unless she opened the pack or she would never smoke a cigarette unless she opened the pack herself. And she would never use another cigarette out of a pack that someone else had touched. I mean, I can't hate on her for that, though. Oh, that one makes sense. But how are you hosting plays at your house and then walking around and wiping everything down if they, they touch stuff? Oh, I'm sure she had freakouts after everybody left. And well, probably while they were there. And she probably hired people to do it too. Probably. She but I'm like, I'm like, you would have people over to your house all the time. How are you like this OCD? And the movie, Mommy Dearest. <laughs> eh. So um, anyway. Whenever she stayed at a hotel, like no matter how good or reputable it was, she would scrub the bathroom herself before using it. So I feel like that's something similar to stuff my mom would do. But like it was deserved because the places were dirty as fuck. Yeah. No, she was she was staying in very upscale places and still was like Yeah. Still was like no my butt is not touching this toilet seat i didn't i can't bring my own toilet seat here so i guess i'll just clean it i wonder if she would have been that person though like in the modern era of being a movie star and she was afforded all those opportunities to be super extra Mm -hmm. yep i'm voting she's this is probably where marie terry gets it from absolutely in 1937, Joan was proclaimed the first queen of the movies by Life magazine. And then that same year, um, and the following couple of years after that, actually were um, not so successful for her. So it's really weird. She had a fast decline. There was like a mix, mismatch, I'll call it, of film pairings with her. And um, I don't know. It was just a lot of weirdness going on. Well, the movies in general in that era were so awkward. Yeah, I well, she wasn't. She wasn't getting along with the people at MGM and didn't like the scripts they were sending her. And I don't know. It just it went downhill fast. Yeah, this is not. Hold on, I gotta mute. So in early 1938. A movie trade paper listed Joan along with other actresses or actors like Catherine Hepburn and Fred Astaire as box office poison. So the article itself complained more about the old fashioned style and plots of current movies than about the actual stars. But the label of being called box office poison stuck to the individual stars nonetheless and caused you know, a big damage. Yes. A big hoopla in the industry. So um, within six years, she went from top 10 to box office poison. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not life's wild. Still. Right. Uh, by 1939, she was around 35 years old. You're an and old her, exactly. Uh-huh. Yes. I mean, she was almost menopausal, for heaven's sake. (laughs) Uh, Her career and her second marriage were falling apart. Um, So (laughs) a year later is when she decided that she was going to adopt a child. So her first daughter, she adopted in 1940. um, But because she was single, California law prevented her from adopting within the state. So she arranged the adoption through an agency in Las Vegas uh, she actually called the the girl Joan Crawford Jr. for a little bit <laughs> and then eventually ended up changing her name to Christina, which is the child that we all know from Mommy Dearest. I mean, do you blame her? And then Joan <laughs> married actor Philip Terry in 1942. Um, they only dated for like six months and then they adopted a son whom they named Christopher, but his birth mother reclaimed him. So here's my note. 
In my note, I put, here's the tea, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> because, you know, I had to go searching down. How does a birth mother reclaim the child that's been adopted? Right. So during a magazine interview, Joan discussed the location of Christopher's birth. And then the biological mother somehow showed up at Joan's home in Brentwood wanting the baby back. So, I mean, that's not a lot of details, but there was something that happened with this magazine interview that gave enough information for the biological mom to figure out like where Joan lives or how to get to her or something. And so thinking this woman was doing it just to get attention. Well, so they said thinking that a fight would hurt the well-being of the child, Joan actually gave him back to the mom. But then the mom sold him to another family. Yeah, exactly. So one of two things was happening. Mom didn't like Joan, period. She could read the signs be like, no, no, this is not the life I was trying to give him. No, no, no. <laughs> or Maybe. notoriety. Maybe. Um, it was hard to find that, though. So... I don't know how you found out all of this. I'm still not going to ask. I'm just going to assume it was in between watching the court or whatever it's called. Queen's Uh, Court. Queen's Court. Thank you. I was, I was very enthralled in all these people's lives yesterday. I was like, what happened to Joan's child? How does he get reclaimed? But wait, there's Evelyn. Evelyn, why do you like this guy? Oh my God. <laughs> um, so Joan and Philip ended up adopting another boy whom they named Philip Terry Jr. And then um Joan and Philip got like their they got divorced. In 1946. So then Joan changed the child's name to Christopher Crawford. So let's just back up here for a second. Mm -hmm. First girl Joan names after herself, Joan Crawford Jr., then changes the name to Christina. Then they adopt a boy, name him Christopher. That boy goes back to his original mother and then to another family. Then they adopt another boy whom they name a junior. Philip Terry Jr. But then after the divorce, she names the second boy Christopher as well. Yep. Yep. Very odd. We have issues. Very odd. Then then she had twins, not her. I mean, she adopted twins, Cindy and Kathy. So... She adopted them as a single mom again in 1947. Now, all of her children all have C names. Christina, Christopher, Cindy, and Kathleen. Which Christina and Christopher are also very close. Like, like closer names for a boy and a girl. Um, By the 1940s, MGM was no longer giving her uh, the any kind of good roles, I guess. So, um... Since there were newcomers in Hollywood, you know, the public wanted to see them instead. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you know, Joan's like 40. So she's, you know, an old hag. And um, she was actually asked to take over one of Carol Lombard's roles because Carol Lombard died in an airplane crash. Mm -hmm. So she played um, she played. Well, the part that was originally intended for Carol and they all kissed the bride in 1942. So Joan took her salary from that movie and dedicated it or donated it to the Red Cross. And then that's what led to actually finding Carol's body was because Joan was able to donate the funds for them to like find her. And then she actually fired her agent because he took his 10%. (laughs) She said, fuck you, buddy. <laughs> no. Agents, man. The nerve. It wasn't, my, it wasn't my thing to do. It was for you and your people. Right? You made this choice. That was your decision. Um, so Joan left MGM for rival Warner Brothers. And she had a leg where she ended up um, not really filming any films at Warner Brothers, though. Uh she she had in mind that she would have like a particular 
type of role or um, certain type of scripts that she would be getting. Um, They gave her one for this movie called Conflict. She didn't end up taking it. And this is the quote as to why. She said, Joan Crawford never dies in her movies and she never ever loses her man to anyone. Yoni, get it together, babe. (laughs) (laughs) You're the nut. Well, the thing is, like, again, Joan, it's a character, but it's okay. So it's all right. She waited it out and then she got her role of the lifetime. So in 1945 um, is when she was in Mildred Pierce and she was really able to show her range as an actress and she actually ended up winning an Oscar for best actress for that movie. Nice. Um, and then she was nominated for two more Oscars after that. Um, so her career kind of slowed down a little bit after those nominations and those movie appearances. And so then she ended up in a minor role in 1962 in whatever happened to baby Jane. And that's when her and Betty Davis co-starred and when the rival began. Is that also when the quote, you love me, you really love me came. Isn't that her? Hmm. I have to look it up because I think, or maybe it was just a movie. You love me. You really love me. I got to look it up. Yeah. So earlier in their careers, I guess maybe the rivalry didn't, begin with this movie but as far as I know it's the first time they co-starred together so anyway earlier in their careers Betty Davis and had said of Joan Crawford this is so ridiculous so Betty Davis said she about Joan she's slept with every male star at MGM except Lassie (laughs) meaning the dog Lassie Betty <laughs> Petty Betty D out for delivery. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just a an odd side note, Joan was named as like the quote unquote other woman in at least two divorces. <laughs> at least 13 other divorces. <laughs> uh so then Joan said of Betty, I don't hate her, even though the press wants me to. I resent her. I don't see how she built a career out of a set of mannerisms instead of real acting ability. Take away the pop eyes, the cigarette and those funny clipped words. And what have you got? She's phony, but I guess the public really likes that. Shit. Joni did have substance. She was deep. Yeah. Deeply traumatized. So there was a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they claim they didn't have anything in common, but in reality, they did. Like, let's just talk about the beginning of the story again, right? And how similar it was to Betty Davis's story. Mm-hmm. So they both had fathers who abandoned them at a young age. They both rose from poverty into success and came into films during the late 1920s. Um, they had siblings and mothers who milked them financially once they became famous. Uh, they both won Oscars. They were both um, liberal Democrats and feminists. They each had four husbands. They each adopted children and they each had daughters that wrote books about them. So they're extremely similar, actually. (laughs) So that's why they hated each other. They saw each other as themselves. (laughs) Like looking in a mirror. (laughs) You're gross. I'm never going to be like you. Uh, It's really just inner deep shame. (laughs) And so, yeah, so uh, Joan married her fourth and final husband, Alfred Steele, at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas in 1955. So Joan and Alfred met at a party the year before. And uh, by that time, Alfred had become president of Pepsi Cola. He was later named chairman of the board and CEO of Pepsi Cola. Okay. Uh, so Joan traveled extensively on behalf of Pepsi following their marriage in 1966. It's estimated that she traveled over a hundred thousand miles a year for the company. And Dang. so 
when Alfred died of a heart attack in 1959, um, she was elected as one of the board of directors. So that's why I say, wait, in 1966, she was doing all that traveling for the company because she was on the board of directors and she like took it very, very seriously. And a lot of the um, research about her calls her like a businesswoman. I imagine so. She was no nonsense. And I think that's what you need in the business world. But so she received the sixth annual Pally award, which was the shape of a bronze Pepsi bottle and it was awarded to the employee making the most significant contribution to company sales. Oh, um, Ooh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> in 1973, she officially retired from Pepsi when she was 65. Okay. Um, she continued making like small bits here and there in movies and um, TV shows and stuff too. Like this woman did not stop working. No, she was a hustler to the day she died because of how she was brought up. Yeah. Uh, One funny fact is that during her time as as a director at Pepsi, she would see sometimes the president of Coke, like at the same restaurant or in the same like area, the same, you know, mixing and mingling or whatever. And they would always send each other a bottle of each other's products. (laughs) That's amazing and hilarious at the same time. And don't ask me how I found these things. Again, I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm going to leave the secrets to the universe today because I'm tired. <laughs> so after retirement, she still made appearances in movies and TV. And her appearance in the 1969 television film Night Gallery was actually the first time that Steven Spielberg directed a professional actor. Really? So... um. She starred on the screen like one final time playing Dr. Brockton in a science fiction horror film called Trog in 1970. <laughs> and because um, in her later career, she ended up being in a lot of like horror films and kind of weird shit. But um, Trog. yeah, so the film was called Trog. And so that was the last film. And that's what rounded out like the 45 years in making movies and the 80 motion pictures. Um, So then in or on February 2nd, 1970, Joan was presented with the Cecil B. DeVille DeMille award by John Wayne at the Golden Globes. John Wayne was cool. And then she published her autobiography, A Portrait of Joan, in 1962. Joan's next book, though, My Way of Life, was published in 1971. So her first book was before the award. The second book was after the award. And um, at this point, her, her last movie had already happened. And things were really, like, wrapping up for her career-wise. Like, she was getting quite old. So, um, <laughs> she was in her fifties. <laughs> just no. kidding. I'm just kidding. Like at that point, uh, no, she, well, you know what? She was probably early sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, where was I? Oh, so the second book, my way of life, people were expecting like a racy tell all. They were very disappointed. It was oh. just Joan's metac- meticulous ways of Existing. of doing things in life. <laughs> so she gave advice on grooming and wardrobe and exercise and like food storage. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Perfect so she said, she said my this. way of life, and she really meant it. <laughs> <laughs> you clean bathrooms before you use them, even at hotels, you change out toilet seats after you get divorced. Um, (laughs) I genuinely hope that's in there. (laughs) So she ended up having a heart attack in 1977. Um, She was somewhere around 69. Unclear. Um, A couple of days, though, before she passed away, she actually gave away her Shih Tzu, and her Shih Tzu's name was Princess Lotus Blossom. (laughs) Of course it was. Did she go by her full name all the time? (laughs) 
I don't see why she wouldn't. Um, and then her funeral was at Campbell Funeral Home in New York. And uh, in her will, she, eight months prior to her death, decided to um, only only provide earnings, money, things to Cindy and Kathy, the twins, uh-huh. not the other two children. The other so, two endured her crazy in the beginning. So Cindy and Kathy each received about $78,000 from the $2 million estate. <laughs> There's some off math there. Yeah. That's weird. Okay. So um, a lot of the money went to Joan's favorite charities. I can appreciate that too, but what were the charities? There's a whole list of them, so I did not include them because it would have took way too long for me to go through them. I have a feeling they were good, good things though. They were. They were. They were all really great. In very traditional, like American Red Cross and um, uh, American Heart Association and things of that nature. I mean, okay. so she had explicitly disinherited the two eldest children, Christina and Christopher. And this is the, the quote from Joan. It is my intention to make no provision herein for my son, Christopher, or my daughter, Christina, for reasons which are well known to them both. Oh my. They both That's challenged crazy. it and ended up receiving a $55,000 settlement each. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> Why did she hate them so much? Yeah. Well, so Christopher, he was apparently an extremely uh hard child to manage. Like he purposefully behaved badly. A lot like probably in today's time he was like in juvie you know like oh. was stealing getting into fights like when I say bad I mean like bad bad like could not stay in school got kicked out constantly yada yada just however disrespectful all the time yeah however he ended up going into like the army or Navy or something. He ended up going into one of the military forces. Um, so anyway, the last time Christopher saw Joan was in 1961 and he was 19 years old and he had already had a wife and kid, which equates with military lifestyle. Right. And just, he had no real like aim in life. Um, at least at that time, I don't know about now. So, um, he took his wife and child to meet Joan and there was an interview with the Los Angeles times where Christopher were called, he, he called her JC, not mom, not Joan. He called her JC. That is J- beyond. <laughs> mm-hmm. He said, JC was staying at the fountain blue my daughter was six weeks old and I thought JC would like to see her granddaughter. She held Janet, which must be his granddaughter or his daughter's name, her granddaughter. She held Janet for about 10 seconds. I said, Janet, this is your grandmother. She's a very famous lady. JC said, I'm nobody's grandmother. I'm Aunt Joan. Yep. <laughs> then she handed her back to me and said, she doesn't look anything like you. Oh, God. So Christopher remained estranged from his mother until her death. Indefinitely. There was no repairing the relationship. So after 19 years old, he didn't have anything to do with her. I don't blame him. She was a bitch to him. Oh, my God. And then... As we spoke of, Christina wrote the 1978 memoir, Mommy Dearest, in which she writes of enduring highly erratic and abusive behavior from Joan um, all through her childhood. And there are allegations that Joan was emotionally and physically abusive to Christina and her brother, Christopher, um, because she chose fame and her career over parenthood. 
However, Joan's two other daughters, Kathy and Cindy, denounced the book and have denied any abuse. Cindy told reporters in 1979, I can't understand how people believe this stupid stuff Tina has written. I mean, it was Tina's experience, though. <laughs> so the book was then adapted into the 1981 film starring Faye Dunaway's Joan. A couple of quick quotes that I found that are extremely uh, entertaining to me. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is about to be really good. <laughs> one of them is Joan saying, I need sex for a clear complexion, but I'd rather do it for love. <laughs> What does that even mean? Uh, having sex helps keep her rhythm right so she doesn't get acne, I guess. Um, oh, God. Another one is love is fire. But whether it is going to warm your hearth or burn down your house, you can never tell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Yes. laughs> accurate <laughs> <laughs> so i got all of this stuff from the following sources biography.com wikipedia joan crawford best.com romper.com imdb.com britannica.com and bustle.com Wee, thanks ho man that was such a good synopsis of that crazy lady <laughs> I feel, though, we'll never be able to do her true justice because we'll never know why she was as crazy as she was. I mean, she came from nothing and then ended up being, like, one of the biggest moneymakers in the United States pretty quickly and at a very young age. I I don't think anyone can handle that well. That's probably why we see a lot of fucked up stuff with um, child actors still to this day, right? Oh. You, you see all these drug overdoses and suicides and everything and they're in their 40s because they feel like they probably peaked at 12 or whatever and um even the other day what was it was the band like lfo or something like doesn't have any members left i could be i could be making that i could be saying the wrong well they're not still but i mean they were at one point lfo band members yeah yeah i think well original lfo member dead at 47 Whoa. and that was recent that was on um march 29th of this year that's why i was thinking of them i was like i knew i heard something recently whoa that's crazy what happened and um so yeah three out of the four members of lfo have died perished young yes in case you don't know what I'm talking about, you're again born after 2000 because you are not clearly aware of the 1990 hit Summer Girls. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fly when a girl walks by for the summer, for the summer. summer. <laughs> yeah, it was 1999. I don't know if I said that clearly, but anyway. Um, so Miss Joan Crawford was a lot to digest and. I do feel like I, I had been putting off her and some of the other big ones because I really felt like they needed the time. Yes. And this actually, the amount of pages that I have is not as many as some of the other stories that I've done, but it, the way that it was packed full of information yeah. is been, it was completely different. Um, so hopefully I did Joan justice. I personally think you did. I love that you did Joan when I was younger my mom was very much into the older movies older Hollywood movies and I was very familiar with her as a young person and terrified of her as a young person <laughs> so thank you for doing Joan Car Crawford the crazy <laughs> I mean I had to after doing Betty Davis you sure did you I couldn't sure let it linger did. on too long no and I'm glad you did it was the perfect time so I think it's <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> At a girl time. Uh... <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> breathing. Breathing's new for me. 
it's, it's um their first I wasn't even having a drink of water or anything I literally just like <laughs> inhaled as I tried to talk no it's um cool. everything's about <laughs> to get you right now let's chill <laughs> so girls are things that we're proud of ourselves for doing accomplishing or like good things that happen to us we just like to end on a positive note so Miss Sarah, do you have an Atta Girl? Yeah. <laughs> it was a good thing. Like, I'm proud of myself for doing it. So my taxes were, I got my taxes done. They're done. And like, they're done on time. And Nothing like waiting until the day before. Oh, no, they were done on Friday. I had them done like I three days before. <laughs> sent everything in. They <laughs> called me last week and they're like, you can come sign the final documents. I'm like, all right, cool. And then, you know, so I went and did that today and I'm on time. I'm really proud of myself. Oh, wow. I'm proud of you too. You don't want any kind of penalties. No, who does? You don't want to get, you don't want to, you know, shoot off any red flags to the government for any reason. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, my ad girl is that I got all of my winery trip planning done for my trip to Napa in May. And let me tell you about the coordination. <laughs> oh. I was going cross-eyed. Um, uh, you don't necessarily have to have a reservation at a lot of wineries, but the good ones and, of course, the ones I really wanted to go to, you it's, it's advised right. that you have a That's reservation. Popular. And um, so trying to figure out the best route and so you're not driving all over, um, backtracking where you've already been, et cetera, et cetera, and allowing yourself enough time to like enjoy the experience, but not feel rushed, but get there before they close. <laughs> but also don't get too loaded while you're there. <laughs> right. I mean, it was, it was a lot, but, um, I, I will technically be there for five days, but three of those days are like heavy, winery tour days and so <laughs> i've got i've got my loose itinerary ready to go nice nice i got all my reservations made even like the brunch spots and stuff man you gotta get wow. in there early are you serious that's impressive i'm impressed i'm not shocked just impressed <laughs> right right you shouldn't be surprised no no this is very this this is very type A behavior for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel a lot better about it though. I like having it. I like having a plan. It's self-soothing. I can appreciate it. <laughs> I would be really pissed though. If like I went somewhere and you're trying to navigate how to get there. It's an hour away. And they're just like, mm, sorry. <laughs> right. As the queen of efficiency, I'd be pissed. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not efficient. I'd be pissed too. Let's be honest. It's just a shitty thing to experience. Truly. So anyway, that's my Atta Girl. So thanks for listening, guys. If you liked what you heard today, please rate, review, subscribe. You can send us a request for a hoe of history to homemancepodcast at gmail.com or you can comment or DM on Instagram at homance underscore chronicles. Um, our closed group on Facebook is still kind of going, uh, if you want to go in there and revive it a little bit, it's the yeah. home chronicles, judgment uh, judgment, free, yeah. Judgment free zone. Um, and please just, you know, spread the word, tell your friends. Home out.